Today we continue our series in 2 Peter on growth and stability in the Christian life. And I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. And I want to begin by reading these words to you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. Peter says this, For, now remember, he's just come off speaking to us about how needed it is that we be reminded always and to be able to recall the things that we've heard at any time. Our desperate need for reminder. He says, but here's why. We need to hear the gospel again and again and again and again. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now the idea of this passage is that the gospel, the essential gospel, is the message of the power, the coming, and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And Peter's overall point in placing it in his letter in this particular place is that vital to Christian growth is that we remember and that we be reminded and that we be able to recall at any time that the gospel that we believe is the message of the power, the coming, and the majesty of Jesus Christ. We serve and we believe, brothers and sisters, a living Savior, an exalted Christ a resurrected Christ who sits at the Father's right hand. We, are, we believe and we are united to an ascended Lord who is filled with majesty and glory. And the message of the Gospel is this very message. The message of the power and the coming and the majesty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this message is so important to us, brothers and sisters, because we can't go on in the Christian life in our own strength, our own power. We can only go on in the Christian life in the power of our resurrected Lord. We can only go on in the Christian life by believing this message that Jesus Christ has power, that He's coming again in judgment to win victory over judgment. And He's coming with majesty, the majesty of His Father and the Holy Spirit, the majesty of the beauty of His holiness and purity and perfection, the perfection of His humanity. And He's coming for us, brothers and sisters. And the life that lives within us by faith is the life of a risen Lord. It's the life of power, of coming, and of majesty. This is Peter's point here. We did not come declaring to you myths, he says. We came declaring to you the power and the coming and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw it with our own eyes. We were there with Him on the mountain. And we need this message. And we need this message, brothers and sisters, because first of all, we're weak and we don't have strength in ourselves. And we need this message because we're sinful and we like to reject this message. And we become self-obsessed too easily. We get distracted by the things of this world and we get our eyes on ourselves, and we try to live the Christian life in our own power and our own strength. And Peter comes in with this glorious salvation that we don't serve a myth We serve a risen Lord. 
an ascended Lord, a resurrected Lord. This is the whole message of the Gospel, Peter is saying from this passage. This is the whole message of the Gospel. You can see this all over the New Testament. I'm going to jump right into this. Look, to me, look with me at a couple of passages. I want to look at Colossians chapter 1. What Peter is saying here is essentially the same thing that Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. Let's start in verse 25. No, let's start in verse 24. Paul, this is a glorious passage we have here in Colossians. This is one of those passages that you find in the New Testament where the apostles are going to tell you in about six or seven words, he's going to sum it up in a short statement, the whole message of the Gospel, the essential message that's being preached. But notice how he sets it up in verse 24. And notice where he goes with it in the verses that come after. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now I just want you to pause for a minute and I want you to realize what an amazing statement that is that Paul is making. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now brothers, that's not natural. That's not something that a person does apart or outside of Jesus Christ. You can't do it. You don't have the power to do it. It's divine. He's rejoicing in sufferings. To a person of the world, to a person who's not a believer, that's insane. That's crazy. But then the question that it raises is how does he do it? Where does he get the strength? Where does he get the joy and the cheer to be rejoicing in his suffering? But he says this, he says, now I rejoice in my suffering. He's going somewhere with this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now don't get distracted by that funny construction. All Paul is saying is that he's, he's, a, he's become an imitator of Jesus. Jesus came to this life. He came from the Father. He came from heaven. He came from glory. He set it all aside for a moment for the sake of His bride out of love for His Father and love for His church. And Paul is saying, I'm doing the same thing. I'm filling up His afflictions. I'm imitating Him. But again, the question is, is how does He find the strength to do it? Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, that is according to my calling as an apostle to preach the Gospel, to make the Word of God fully known. Now this is important to notice because Paul's about to tell us in about seven words what the Word of God fully known means. But he's going to build up to it. He's going to put us in suspense here. Notice what he says in verse 26. God has given me this stewardship to make the, the Word of God fully known. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. Brothers, this is the whole message of the Gospel. This is its, this is its essence. This is its life. This is its vitality. This is its sum. This is its total the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. But we're all saying, but Paul, what is it? What is the mystery? What is this Word of God fully known? Well, he tells us right there at the end of verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Paul is saying the whole message that I, God has called me to make known to you is that the power of Christ lives in you. The coming of Christ lives in you. The majesty of Christ lives in you. And because he lives in you by faith, you have the hope of glory to come in the world to come. This is the whole gospel that we've preached to you. If we haven't preached this message to you, we haven't preached the gospel to you. We haven't preached the mystery of the ages to you. We haven't revealed it one bit. This is essential, he says, to the whole gospel that we are proclaiming. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to you, his saints, the riches of the glory of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Jesus Christ. The reason that Paul is preaching this message of the power and the coming and the majesty of Christ in you is because it's vital to your maturity. It's vital to your growth in Christ. You must understand if you're alive in Christ, the life that lives within you and the life that lives within you is the very life of Jesus Christ, the very resurrection life of Christ. The transfigured life of Christ. The ascension of Jesus Christ lives within you. This is vital, he says. We're warning and teaching everyone. But notice what he says in verse 29. For this I toil. He means this preaching this message. I toil. Struggling with all his energy. That he powerfully works within me. How can Paul say I gladly suffer for this message. We can gladly suffer for it because it's this message that lives within Him and works within Him with resurrection energy, with exalted energy, with ascended energy. The power and the coming and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what enables Him to suffer. It's what enables Him to rejoice in the midst of His sufferings. Because He knows He's preaching this message. The power and the coming and the majesty of Jesus Christ. This is something very similar to what Paul says in chapter 3 of Colossians. Just turn your eyes over, maybe a page. Maybe you have to turn the page. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, you have new life, you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, what new life do you have? It's the resurrection life of Christ. It's the life of the Lord Jesus that lives in you by the Holy Spirit, by faith. He lives in you. He doesn't say, if, you, he doesn't say, if then you will be raised with Christ. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, if you're spiritually alive, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you've been raised with Him from death into life. You were lost and you were found. You were in the kingdom of darkness. You've been transferred. You've been pulled into, moved into the kingdom of His dear Son. You are alive in Jesus Christ. You've been raised with Him. Seek therefore the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. That's our temptation. It's to keep our minds on sinful things and on earthly things and temporary and transient things. Verse 3, For you have died. You've died by faith. You've died to your old self. Christ's power has crushed the dominion of sin in your life. Christ's coming has won victory over judgment. Christ's majesty lives within you. You've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you will also appear with him in glory. There's an already not yet, isn't there? Already by faith, his life lives within you. The resurrected Christ, the power of Christ, the coming of Christ, the majesty of Christ, it lives within you. I know that this doctrine can be difficult for some people. I know that it can be difficult for some people because we live in in an age in which the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is everywhere. Everywhere we turn, people are preaching the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. And we should rightly be on our guard against it. But you have to understand, brothers and sisters, that the evil of that doctrine, of that false doctrine, is not the ground on which it rests. It rests on the doctrine that I am preaching to you today, that the gospel comes to us with a message of glory. But the evil of the health, wealth, prosperity is the way that they twist that doctrine in their application of it. Because they turn the glory and the power and the coming of Christ to serve your pleasures in this life. That's the evil of it. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't lose this core doctrine because it's the doctrine that we preach, but not so that we might indulge the flesh, but so that we might be liberated for it. And like Paul becomes servants of Christ with all the energy that Christ works within us to serve one another in love and to become reflections of his glory and his majesty. When he humbled himself for a moment for your sakes and then returned to glory, you together with him, let's imitate our Lord and our Savior. By the life of His that lives within us, by His resurrected life, by His ascension, by His power, by the knowledge of His power, His coming, and His majesty. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We just looked at it. We read it before the sermon began. The reason why I chose that passage is because it very clearly tells us that the veil has removed, been removed from our faces and we see Jesus for who He really is. And because we see Jesus for who He really is, we see the Scriptures for what they really are. And as we read these Scriptures, and as we behold the face of our Savior that it's revealed to us in these Scriptures, we clearly see His power, His coming, and His majesty. And as we see it, we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory by the Spirit who is within us. This is the whole message of the gospel. Now, we don't see it by sight, do we? You look at yourself, you look at your life, you say, I don't see the power coming in majesty of Christ in me. You look at the, you look at the mirror and you say, I'm suffering all around. I'm, I, you just, just, just by sight, you look at yourself and you say, how can you say that the power of Christ lives within me? You look at yourself and you see all the temptations. You see all the ways that you still fall short. And you say, how can you say that the power of Christ lives within me? And that His coming lives within me? And His majesty lives within me? Well, Paul says, it's not something that we see by sight. It's like what First John, John says in 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, when he says that what we are has not yet been revealed. But we have this hope in us. When we see Jesus as He is, we will be like Him. And whoever has this hope in Him purifies Himself even as He is pure. But brothers and sisters, it's not something that we see with our eyes. It's not something earthly. It's not something worldly. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, my outer man is perishing. You say, amen, that's what I see. I see my outward man perishing. Things are getting worse. (laughs) I'm falling apart. And it hurts. But Paul says the outer man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. 
And his point in the context, of course, is as we're being conformed to the image of the glory of our Savior. We're being conformed to the image of the power and the coming and the majesty of our Savior. And he lives within us. And the life that we live is the life of Christ, his resurrected life, his exalted life, his ascended life. And it's important that we understand this. It's important that we understand this, brothers and sisters, precisely because God has called us in this life to extreme suffering. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Or I mean 1 Thessalonians. Did I say 2 Thessalonians? 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonians. Paul loved the Thessalonian church. He's writing to them like a mother, like a father. He's worried about them. In a godly way, he has a a godly care and concern for them. Because they're suffering persecutions, and and he's nervous about, he's nervous that these persecutions, these sufferings that they're suffering, and the Thessalonians brothers, they were experiencing great suffering. Any suffering you can imagine, they were suffering. They were put in prison, they were being beaten, their bodies were mutilated. Any kind of suffering you've experienced, they were suffering it. Some of them had put to death. Their property had been stolen. They're being persecuted. They're suffering in these horrendous ways. And Paul is concerned about them. He's concerned that they're not going to persevere or endure through them. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish you and exhort you in your faith. And what did he send Timothy to exhort them in? That no one be moved by these afflictions. Can you imagine sending Timothy to the Thessalonian, the church of Thessalonica and having him exhort them and saying, look, I know that you're suffering all of this, but by the gospel, don't you dare be moved by it. <laughs> Again, that's unnatural, isn't it? If you're a person of the world, that's crazy. But Paul's concerned about this and he sends them Timothy to tell them not to be moved by their afflictions. But notice why. The heart, the doctrinal, the theological uh, heart of his exhortation. Verse 3. No one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that you were destined for this. What a word he uses there. The word he uses is the word, you've been appointed by God to these afflictions. It's the same kind of word that he uses in another place to speak about the doctrine of election. God predestined you for these moments in your life in Christ. Do you see what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians? He's saying, as Christians, you have been called to suffer these things. God himself has appointed them for you, prepared them for you. God is the one who has sent you into these trials. He's sovereign. He's in control. And part of being a follower of Christ is that God calls you to a life of hardship and a life of suffering. Do you think about your Christian life that way? That God has called you to suffer? He's appointed these things for you. He's destined you for your sufferings. Now, not ultimately. Ultimately, He's destined us for future glory. But in the meantime, we can truly say that just as Christ was appointed to come into this world and suffer to be Savior of the world, the people of Christ have been appointed by God, sent by God, called by God to suffer in this world. It's your calling if you are in Christ Jesus. 
This is exactly what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. You don't have to look there when Jesus says to his disciples and he teaches them and says, look, anybody who wants to be my true disciple, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. He must follow me. That's Jesus calling us to follow him and to imitate him in taking up his cross. Now, my question to you is, what did Jesus do when he took up his cross? I think this is where Christians go wrong a lot of the times. They don't think about what Jesus is saying. What is the message of the gospel? Now, you're thinking probably, first of all, about the atonement. You think Christ going to the cross and becoming a substitutionary sacrifice and being the Lamb of God. Those things are very, very important. Praise the Lord for those doctrines. But Jesus in that place is thinking more broadly. He's thinking more universally. What's the message of the gospel? The Father sent the Son from heaven. From a position of exalted glory with the Father from all eternity. He sent Him to humble Himself for a moment out of love for the Father and out of love for the Father's people and to suffer extremely in love for the sake of those people in order to bring those people back into Christ's own glory and majesty with the Father that He had before the world began. Do you understand that's the pattern of the Gospel? From a position of glory, Christ is called to suffer For a moment. In order that he might return to glory and sit at his father's right hand. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, follow me. I I went to the cross to give you power, coming and majesty. To give you my resurrected life. To make you sons and daughters of God. To adopt you into the kingdom. (laughs) That my resurrected life might live within you so that you might, from a position of glory, from a position of riches and wealth, spiritual riches and spiritual wealth, might humble yourself for a moment for one another's sake in whatever small way God has called you to. To humble yourself like I did. And to pour yourself out like I did, in love for one another so that one, you one another might come in and, and enjoy the love of the Father and the Son that lives within you. Just as I did, Jesus is saying. We must have this message. You can't keep going. You're not going to make it, <laughs> Peter is saying. You, you can't put on those virtues. You can't keep striving for holiness that he's talked about in the early parts of chapter 1 that we've looked at in prior series. You can't strive after holiness. You can't do it in your own strength. You don't have the strength to do it. You can't do it in your own wisdom. You don't have the wisdom to do it. You can't do it in your own power, your own coming, or your own majesty. You don't have the power, coming, or majesty to do it. <laughs> you get the point. You must do it by faith in me. I am your power. I am your coming. I am your majesty. I'm your victory over the dominion of sin. I'm your victory over judgment. And I am the love of the Father expressed to you from all eternity to bring you into that glorious, majestic, wonderful, uh, almost inexpressible reality. Look with me really quickly at 2 Timothy. Chapter 1. Verse 8 through 12. We'll round this off a little bit by just looking at one more passage where Paul speaks about the same things. Again, another one of these passages where he just sums, he sums up the whole New Testament. I know we love these 
Just six or seven words. If you want to sum up the gospel, it's this message, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And here's another one of those kinds of passages where he just tells us what the whole thing is about. It's the same thing Peter's doing in chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, he's, Now, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, but we can make broader application for our purposes. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoners, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. There's our calling to suffering. And brothers and sisters, again, when we hear Christ say, you must take up your cross and follow me, and that we're called to suffering, it should cause us to, to, to gulp it should cause us to it should drive us to our knees it should not cause us to arrogantly say well if christ calls me to suffering then i'll go suffer it should cause us a little bit of questioning it should cause us a little bit of concern because who can suffer like christ suffered i know i can't that's a high calling it makes me tremble in my boots when jesus says only my true disciples follow me and i think i can't even begin to hope to do such a thing and we should all be thinking that way. It's the Pharisees, the arrogant, it's the presumptuous who says, well, Jesus called me to a life of suffering, I'll go, I'll go suffer. But here Paul, then, in that same context, Paul is exhorting Timothy. He's saying, no, don't be ashamed of the testimony. Share in the suffering of the God. Oh, where is he saying this? Where does this come from? Share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. By the power of the message of the gospel who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. That's your strength, brothers. There's your motivation. There's your life. There's your power. But because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. I'm suffering for this message of glory. And I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. I know He's coming again in power. Because it's already alive in me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now I've read all of those passages to you just to give you a taste. This is essentially what Peter is saying in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 when he says, we didn't follow myths. We followed the biblical gospel. When we came preaching to you the power and the coming and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the gospel. There's no other gospel. It's this gospel. A Christ who humbled himself from a position of glory, humbled himself for a moment that he might bring us into his glory, that we might imitate him from a position of the glory that he's given us, giving it up for just a moment and suffering for one another out of love so that we might return with each other into the fullness and the abundance of the glory of Jesus Christ and the love that he has shown us. Now, that was all introduction. Let's get into our text. That was just to get us warmed up. That was just to get us a sense of what Peter is talking about from the text. 
And I know you're laughing. At, I said it for that reason. I knew I'd get a laugh. I knew I'd get a laugh. You know why I know? Not all of you remember Larry Vincent, but that's what he used to do. He'd preach until 12.15 and say, well, that was my introduction. And I used to give him a hard time about it. And now here I am doing it. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. <clears throat> but here's the review. Let's review a little bit about what we've seen. Peter's been talking about growth in the Christian life. Peter's reminded us that God has by sovereign power and choice given us life and that he's given us everything that we need to live the Christian life and to grow in it. And Peter is now making the point that vital to our Christian growth is constant reminder of the gospel and gospel holiness. And today he's driving home the point that the message that we must be reminded of and be able to recall at any time is the message of the power and the coming and the glory of Jesus Christ because we need it to persevere. We need it to live. We need it to grow. If we don't have it, brothers, we'll lose our own stability. We'll be carried around by every wind of doctrine. We'll foolishly fall into a kind of pharisaical Christianity. We don't live in our power. We live in the power of an exalted, resurrected, ascended Lord who's coming again who is by definition the majesty of God. Christ's power is His power over sin. Christ's coming is His second coming. Now, a second coming implies a first coming. In Christ's first coming, He came in humility. He came to bear the judgment and wrath of God on on behalf of those who would trust in Him. In His second coming, because He's borne the wrath of God, He's fully qualified to return again in His second coming to bring the judgment of God against those who didn't believe in Him, yes. And that's a warning to those who don't believe in Him. But primarily, His second coming is to bring victory and vindication over judgment that He won for them in His first coming for His own people and to bring them into His glory. The power of Christ over sin. The coming of Christ, victory over judgment. And the majesty of Christ is the beauty of His holiness in Trinitarian life and love that He received from the Father and gave to you. And now you receive from Him to give to one another. Power, coming, and majesty. This is the biblical gospel. This is the message of Christ. His life in you, the hope of glory. Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now the original is stronger language than what we see there in verse 16. In verse 16, you could read what Peter is saying to sound something like this. Whenever we speak to you about Christ's second coming, we're not lying to you. That's how a lot of people come to verse 16. I think it's a ridiculous way to read that passage, and it's certainly not what the original in any way suggests. The original is much stronger. Peter says something, it's a little awkward in English, but he says something like this, We are not disciples of myths. We are disciples of the power and the coming and the majesty of Christ. He's not saying, when I talk about the second coming, I'm not lying to you. He's saying the message of the gospel isn't a fairy tale. It's not a myth. It's not a story with a moral lesson at the end so that you can have a nice, happy life. It's not words for life. 
It's not tidbits of wisdom. It's not so that you can be a nicer person with your neighbors or your family members or your community. No, Peter says, we didn't come to you with myths. You know, that's what myths were in the pagan culture. They were this way to contextualize and understand the world and to help encourage people to live a good civil life. Peter is saying that is not what we came with. We are not disciples of myths or stories with moral lessons at the end. We are disciples to you of a revelation, a revelation that we have seen with our own eyes and heard with our own ears. We have come into encounter with the living God. And everything that we write to you, Peter is saying, every word of the New Testament rests on an apocalyptic revelation of the divine being in order to bring you into a a relationship of love and trust and life in Him. The the Gospel is not a guide. It's not a self-help book. It's the vision of the resurrected Christ who's coming again to judge the world and who calls all of us into His life and His love with the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity. It's a message of ultimate reality. Us and God through Jesus Christ. Now, it's not just Peter who says this. This is what he means. He says, we're eyewitnesses of the transfiguration. You remember the transfiguration. Christ was on the mountain and He was transfigured. He altered. He changed. They saw His resurrection, even His ascended glory. They had a vision of heaven right there before their eyes. It's apocalyptic revelation, the kind of revelation that we read about in the book of Revelation and other places in Scripture. And I would remind you that it wasn't just Peter who had this vision in the New Testament, but Paul also. You remember the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus with bright and shining light, with all of his divine, ascended, exalted glory, his ruling and reigning kingly glory. And he said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? (laughs) And you remember that whole encounter and Paul's converted by the very word of Christ, the very power and presence of the Lord. And you remember that Paul was blinded by the whole thing. It was a glorious vision of Jesus Christ and his exalted glory. Now we forget that sometimes. And we forget as we read the book of Romans (laughs) that Paul is writing having seen the things that he's writing about. That's what Peter is saying. First, second, Peter, everything I've written to you, I've seen the Lord, I'm communicating to you. I was there with him on the mountain. This is true all over the New Testament. Of course, John, we can't forget John. John, the book of Revelation, tells us exactly what he saw. You can also go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and see Paul talk about another vision that he had, very similar, apocalyptic revelation. This is no different from the prophets in the Old Testament. You remember Moses saw God. He was there with the 70 elders in Exodus chapter 24. He saw God. He went up into the mountain. He saw the pattern of the tabernacle. He was there with God as a man speaks to his friend. He had a revelation. Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he has that apocalyptic revelation. Ezekiel, I was by the river Kebar. I was taken up by the Holy Spirit and I saw the glory of the Lord. I saw the power and the coming and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Now this gives us confidence in the things that are written. This is where Peter's going. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but that's where he goes in verse 19 and following to the end of the chapter in verse 21. He says, you can bet on it, these words are not the words of men, they're the words of God. 
But his point here, the overall argument that he's making in the book of Second Peter is that the, the life that we've been called to, we can't do in our own strength. We can only do it in the strength of the resurrected Christ. That's who we serve. That's who's being written about. That's who's being proclaimed. A risen Lord. An exalted Christ. Well, then he goes on to tell us that this divine revelation, this communication of the power and the coming and the majesty of Jesus Christ is a revelation of the Trinitarian life and love and salvation for you. There's a glorious majesty to it. And look what he says, verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, Peter's point here is that Christ's power coming in majesty is a revelation of Trinitarian life in love. And uh, we're, we're getting into difficult territory, so I'm going to please pray for me as I deal with this part of the text. The first thing that I want you to see is that there are, in fact, three divine persons in verse 17 that were with them on the holy mountain. First of all, there's Jesus Christ in the flesh. He is the Son of God from heaven. But notice how Peter speaks about him in verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, all that the Son is, he receives from the Father. There's a divine giving and there's a divine receiving between these two persons. Now that's a, that's a wonderful mystery that I'm speaking to you about, brothers and sisters. You can't imagine that Jesus, that the Son of God, if He receives all that He is and all that He has in honor and glory and life, if He receives it from the Father, that there must have been a time before He had it. Or that He lacked something that the Father gave, gave to Him in that sense. The doctrine of the Trinity is a wonderful mystery, but here's what we're taught. We're taught the doctrine of eternal generation. That God simply is the relationship of the Father and the Son for all eternity, from all eternity, and a glorious eternal now, and a glorious eternal today. That all that God is, is communicated and shared between these three divine persons, but specifically the Father and the Son. So that it's simply the nature of God to give as a father gives to his son in the spirit of love. And it's simply the nature of God to receive from the father all that he gives in the spirit of the father, in the spirit of the love. So that when we think about the doctrine of the Trinity, we are thinking about a divine Fellowship, a divine relationship of three persons. Not that there's three gods. Not that there's any division in God. But all that God is is a community and a relationship and a communication of three persons. A father to the son. A son from the father and a spirit from the father in the son. To boil it all down for you to the point that Peter's making here as he reveals to us and speaks to us about this glorious event that he witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration is that he has seen the majesty of the divine giving and receiving. 
And the Son has received from the Father honor and glory. And the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory. You see that said there. The voice was born to Him. That language, born to Him, is the same language that's used in verse 21 to speak about the Holy Spirit. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It says, for no, this is what Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along, as they were born along by the Holy Spirit. And so we have a picture here of Jesus receiving from God the Father honor and glory. We have Him receiving it by the voice born from the majestic glory that is in and with and together with and and in the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit. And the voice that the Father says when He communicates to the Son beyond glory and honor is this, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's a message of love. And then verse 18, the Apostle says, we ourselves heard this voice from heaven. We were with Him on the holy mountain. We've seen these things with our own eyes. The message of the Gospel is the message of the power and the coming and the majesty of Christ, which is nothing less than a revelation of the Son from a position of glory, humbling Himself for a moment for your sakes to bring you into the life and love of the Holy Trinity, to bring you into that glorious fellowship and communion, which you can experience by imitating Him, by faith, by His resurrection power, by the energy that powerfully works within you, by the Spirit of God that's within you, by the message of the Gospel and the truth of it, that Christ has power over sin, He's won victory over judgment, and He is the glory of the Father. You will find the strength and the resources that you need to imitate Him, to receive this and to give it in the Spirit of the Father and the Son. I know those things are hard to understand, but it's the Word of God. And Peter says, I'm not here to tell you stories with moral lessons at the end. I'm here to reveal to you divine reality, which we can sum up. Praise the Lord that the Trinity reveals Himself, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, in His power, in His coming, in His majesty. And that's what the Father is saying here. I want you to notice very carefully. Look at this glorious passage. Look at verse 17 again. We have one more thing to say from verse 17. For when He, that's Christ, received glory and honor from God the Father, and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory. Here's what God says. Here's the voice. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, what, let me ask you a question. Who is the Father addressing? <laughs> it's wonderful. Is He addressing the Son? Is He saying, you are my beloved Son and I'm pleased with you? And of course, the Father would say that to the Son. He said it to Him from all eternity. Why was Christ transfigured? For Christ's sake? Who's the Father addressing? He's addressing you and I is who he's addressing. He's addressing Peter and James and John who were with him on the mountain, but so that it might be written down for our sakes that it might be preached to you today. The Father from heaven is pointing you to his Son, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's pointing you to him. And he's pointing you to his power, his coming, and his majesty. He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. Trust in him. Receive him. So that his life might live in you. 
He's communicating Trinitarian majesty to you in Jesus Christ. In His power coming in majesty which was revealed there on the Transfiguration Mountain. Well, then the Gospel, I'm going to move on from that point. Peter has basically said, I didn't come to you with a myth. I came to you with a message of the power of the coming and the majesty of Jesus Christ, which is nothing less but than that which can bring you into a fellowship with the Father and the Son to imitate Christ, to become like Him in His sufferings, in His resurrection, in His humiliation, in His exaltation. In small little ways you can imitate Him. You can set aside the glory that God has given you and be willing to suffer for one another. And take up your cross. And do like what Jesus did. And be willing to humble yourself for a moment for each other's sake. So that you can bring each other into the love of the fellowship that you have with Christ Jesus and the Father. Which is exactly what Christ did for us on the cross. He suffered for you, brothers. That's what He did. He came to die on the cross. He came to meet your greatest need. To win victory over your sin and over judgment. And to... And to tear down the wall of alienation between you and God. To bring you into the majesty of the fellowship of the Father and the Son. And so the gospel message, thirdly, we can pull from this text, is it's a message of transfiguration. It's a message of hope. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, Peter's point is, is you can trust what we're saying because we are the apostles of Christ. We've seen it. We're not writing to you, miss, and words for life and moral lessons. We're writing to you about a gospel. We're talking to you about the exaltation and resurrection and ascension of the Son of God from all eternity for your sakes, for your salvation. But I want you to notice the language that he uses here. Because it's language of transfiguration. It's language of hope. We ourselves heard this voice. That's hope for us, brothers. And we were with him on the holy mountain. The, The whole purpose of the gospel is to bring us to God. To bring us to himself. This word transfiguration, Peter doesn't use it in this context. We can find it in the Gospels. It's only used two more places in the New Testament. It's only used two places in the New Testament, and, I, and, we, and we've read both of them. <laughs> it's used in Romans chapter 12, where by the mercies of God, we are to be transfigured, transformed by the renewing of our mind, to become living sacrifices that is imitators of Christ and our love for God in love for one another. And it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where by beholding the face of Jesus Christ, by beholding His power coming in majesty, by beholding His glory, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, by faith, we are being transfigured from one degree of glory into the next. And then you read about how Paul works that out in chapter 4 how he's willing to die for the people of God so that they might live. And his outer man is perishing, but his inner man is being renewed day by day. And we ultimately have the hope of the resurrection of even our bodies. So here's the context of what Peter is saying in verse 16 through 18, is that the virtues and the holiness and the maturity and the growth that we are striving for. Yes, we strive for it. And we must be diligent and make every effort. 
but we don't do it in our own strength. We do it in the strength that Christ supplies. We don't do it in fear, but we do it remembering that Christ has come and he's won victory over judgment. And we don't strive in the letter of the law, but in the spirit of the law, in the majesty of Christ's own spirit, in the majesty of the beauty and holiness of Christ's own life in love, which he's received from the Father and has been given to you. It's been born to you from heaven by the Holy Spirit in the words of the apostles and the prophets. This is the message that Peter preaches. It's the message of the power, the coming, and the majesty of Jesus Christ. So if you're in Christ, there's only one application. You cannot live the Christian life in your own power and your own strength. You do it by the life that lives within you. And the life that lives within you is the life of a resurrected, exalted, majestic Christ. And he sits at the Father's right hand and he rules and reigns over all things for your sake and your well-being. You are alive in Christ. And you're always dependent upon him and always going back to him and always feeding on him through the gospel that's been revealed, through the words that have been written that reveal to us these amazing things. If you're outside of Christ, the message of 2 Peter, as I've said to you many times, 2 Peter is not addressed to unbelievers. It's addressed to believers. But here's what we can take from 2 Peter. If you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is exactly what you need. (laughs) You are a slave to your sin. Christ is power over sin. You are under the judgment and wrath of God, and Christ is coming again to execute that vengeance and that fury. But Jesus Christ is also the one who bore that wrath and fury for the sake of those who would trust in Him. You need the coming of Christ to win victory over judgment for you. And you are alienated from the life of God. And you do not know the Father. You do not know the Spirit. And Jesus Christ is the revelation of the majesty of the Holy Trinity who is able to bring you into fellowship and communion with the eternal love and life of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to set you free from your sin and to make you a true disciple of Jesus Christ, a true servant, a true follower of Christ in imitation of Him. Here's the promise of the Scriptures. Whoever calls in the name of Christ will be saved. You but need to call upon Him. And He will rescue you from the dominion of your sin and from the judgment to come and from your alienation from the life of God. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon Him from your heart and confess Him with your mouth. You will be saved. 